We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, I'm speaking with Registered Architect and Director of Interiors at Breathe Architecture, Bettina Robinson. Bettina leads the interior design arm of Breathe and has cultivated a thoughtful approach to spatial organisation and a pioneering attitude towards the utilisation of sustainable materials and design methodologies. We discuss Bettina's process for selecting materials that serve the needs of different typologies and the reason Breathe released their free Guide to Sustainable Materials when others might see that as giving away a whole lot of valuable IP. Let's jump in. I'm here today again back at Breathe Architecture and with the wonderful Director of Interiors at Breathe Architecture, Bettina Robinson. Thank you so much for joining us, Bettina. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's really great to be back in the office and to talk to you about the materiality process that that Breathe goes through in the projects that you're working on. So obviously, in architecture, you know, the selection of materials is a huge part of what every architect does. And we're surrounded by buildings all the time. We see bricks, we see concrete, we see timber, we see steel. And I think sometimes people think, oh, you know, oh, you just choose this, just choose that. It's right there. I see it every day. Is that the sort of process that Breathe goes through, just selecting whatever, whatever's out there? <laughs> I'd love it to be that simple. <laughs> but no, quite seriously, material specification is something we give a serious amount of thought We've always had a strong position about caring for the planet and people and materials obviously contribute to spaces in a significant way in in both those aspects. So we go deep into understanding what materials are, where they come from and their impact in a space and something we've been doing for a long time now and it's really great to see that The industry is becoming more aware of this and healthy materials and sustainable materials and a lot more happening in that space. But certainly 10 years ago, (laughs) that wasn't quite the case. And yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it sounds like, yeah, if you're saying like 10 years ago and it wasn't the case, you had to be like a detective and you were sort of chasing people and different, you know, reps trying to say, you know, is this really the best material we have? You know, I've heard about this certification. Do you have that? And then that might limit your choices. How did you navigate that in the past? And yeah, how are you now navigating that with your product library? The way you say detective nature is so exactly how we felt. So we developed a sustainable materials guideline, which really the reason we did that was to, it comes down to common sense. And so it's asking, it asks why, what, where, and then value and reflect. And so why? The first biggest question that we always need to ask is why do we need a material in a building at all? It's simple and it's the most, in our opinion, you know, build less, give more is the way we design and so what are we doing with that material in the first place? Then going into what is that material, like what it's raw 
what is the raw material? How is it ext- extracted? How is it made? And then into the where. So where is it manufactured? What are the working conditions like for the people creating this material? And then into transportation, how does it arrive on site? How is it packaged? So basically just looking at breaking down the steps of every material from its extraction to arriving on site. And then on site, what is the value that that material brings to a project from a cost perspective, but also its performance in place? And then lastly, always reflecting on projects. You know, there's always trial and error in architecture. Mm. And sometimes some things just don't work and you need to learn from that and you need to share that knowledge and experience with your practice and your peers. And so so these questions we would ask our suppliers, where's the material coming from? And <laughs> Where is it made? And but the suppliers wouldn't give us answers. They didn't know the answers other than the main responses are, are generally were around aesthetics and cost and those sorts of, you know, it's scratch proof and you can install it like this, which is really easy and the builders love it. And so we really would kind of dig out as much information and and really get the suppliers to find that information for us or we wouldn't use the product. And it sounded very, it was quite standoffish and in a way, but we had to push these questions. And I think that's now just seeing this emergence of more sustainable materials in the market is because there is this demand for it. And so now we're finding suppliers know more about their product. It's an important part of them selling their product to you. And so it's this really industry-led change and it's all about, it's asking for what you want and and knowing what you're at. Yeah, asking the right questions. Yeah, great. And I guess that also gives not only you in knowing that you've gone through all those steps finding you know uh, the products that have a low embodied energy footprint or carbon footprint and also have you know it's engaging with local jobs and things that have been harvested in a good way all of those sorts of questions which is great from breathes perspective which is a very sustainable practice trying to do the best thing for the planet but also the clients who come to you requesting that as well you can show them that you've gone through all of those steps and you've got all of those documents from the suppliers to say oh, we asked all those questions and we've only accepted the ones that ticked all those boxes too. Yeah, we quite we proudly back ourselves on the materials we specify and sometimes you can be in really challenging situations on particularly on projects, commercial ones where the budget is quite rigid and sustainable materials are not always expensive or how you use them you then it's about how you design them into the building in a way that is affordable and you prioritize certain materials over other ones in particular areas but an example just being you know multi-residential architecture flooring is always a really tough one you know our preference like we have at the Commons and a number of the Nightingale projects is recycled hardwood flooring and it's it doesn't get any better than that. You know, it's a reclaimed material, a local material. It's come off, you know, taken from a building 150 years old and then you nail it into 
the floor in a new building and you'll get another 150 years of life out of it. You don't glue it down and so by nailing it down, it can be lifted and and have a whole nother life. And it ages beautifully. You finish it with low VOC products and you can restore it in place by sanding in place. So in terms of a sustainable material and in all aspects, it just, you know, ticks all the boxes. But unfortunately, in current climate and and the importance of affordable housing as well, we can't afford to be putting recycled timber floors in large multi-residential buildings. And it's also incredibly hard to find the stock and hold it and mm. the complications of that holding the material process. And so we're looking at alternatives and, you know, clients will will ask us, to put new products in the market that have arisen. So vinyl look, timber floorboards, because they're incredibly cheap. They supposedly don't scratch (laughs) and last forever, even though it's a material that's only been on the market in, you know, a short amount of time. And so in instances like that, we really get out our swords and... (laughs) Really try to get our clients understanding the pros and cons to every material and the implications of that. And so, you know, the argument in that case is the inability to restore it in place. And so in 10 years' time, when this product will wear down, Mm. to replace it, that material goes 100% into landfill. And so in the space of the build-to-rent space, which is emerging, that's a cost to them in the future as opposed to materials that you can restore in place. Not necessarily recycled timber floorboards, but there's other options available that are not petroleum-based products. So, yeah, no, that's, that's a really great consideration, I think, because in specifying reclaimed or reused materials, which has got sort of a great existing history story behind it, it's still about durability, which yes. is, you know, some people might think isn't the case. They might think, oh, it's old, so it's sort of worn, so it can't be as durable as the new stuff. But that's not always exactly the case. Yeah. No, like I see durability in in how does the material look as it ages? Can it take a dent and still look beautiful? And Will it exceed a trend to the durability of, of something that it's not, it's going to last there because people like it and they'll always be in an innate connection to that material that will exceed time because trends can be one of the worst things. If someone, you know, a bathroom can be perfectly still functional and materials in still good condition, but new owners come in or even just the existing owners of that property, if they don't all of a sudden, it don't, they don't like it anymore and then that whole bathroom will get ripped out and go to landfill. And so avoiding trend-based design is something we really try to do and it's, I guess, a hard one to judge but definitely something that we think about. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting consideration in the design and architecture space, I guess, because yeah. so many of us are creatives and want to put our own spin on something or our own signature. Yeah. And sometimes, yeah, if it's something that after 10 years or a couple of owners don't like, then yeah, it's not going not gonna to stick around and that's not the best thing, I guess, in the longevity of the materials we're trying to specify. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I love the term when you were talking about common sense, and I've talked about this with a few other people, is that in all the time we spend studying and then working in architecture, things become more common sense for us, even though we're saying, you know, oh, well, we do it every day, so it's common sense. <laughs> and then when we're talking to clients, sometimes we have to take them on that educational journey. Have there been any elements like that with some of the materials you specify where people seem to think like that's a left of field choice, but then because you've specified them again and again and again, it's a common sense choice for you? Yeah, timber is always a challenging one where we opt for hardwood timber on kitchen bench tops or desk surfaces or door frames and it's a great material to work with and often it's like you get that pushback from the client or joiner saying, oh, you can't have timber on a bench, it's not durable. And we're all had timber bench tops some point in our life, whether our dining table or in in a, a older home, and and you'll find those timber bench tops. They're still there, and again, it's that that perception around what will age gracefully. So yes, it'll scratch and it needs a bit of maintenance. But as does stone, you know, mm-hmm. stone can stain. It needs sealing. It can chip and scratch. But there's you know. There's this perception that stone is more durable because it's harder. And similar with class one timbers in external applications, they don't necessarily need sealer finishes. They will grey off if they're not sealed, but class one timbers are durable in their own right and they don't need the maintenance, the regular maintenance of sealing. And so in that the thought process of, well, if we don't need a sealer, then let's not apply the sealer. But it's it's just often those those little so just like the preconceived the ideas, idea. yeah, of how a material where a material performs and how it should be treated. Yeah, great. Yeah. So I mean you've already mentioned the low carbon and or low low impact materials and designing for the planet. What are some of the choices that that Breathe makes and that you make when, um, w- with the, the material selection guideline that you've put together, when I mentioned before that there are sort of the ubiquitous materials of timber, concrete, steel, and you know, a bunch of others, it could be carpets, you know, things like that. Some people in the sustainability space might say, well, timber is so great, just don't use steel. But then in Breathe's projects, you seem to see mild steel in a bunch of different places. Yep. How do you go through that sort of process? You definitely, it's got to be um, measured in context to what are you building. And so concrete, for example, is very high in carbon. Concrete is, there's a lot of development happening in that space, which is great. And we're seeing a lot of low carbon options coming onto the market. But, you know, in Melbourne, when we're looking at a project which is a multi-residential building, looking at an affordable, affordable housing and concrete is still the most economical material to build with in Melbourne at a scale. And so you can build at a certain speed. It's obviously got its strength. And so in a, you know, in comparison to a timber structure, we're just not there with our projects of that typology at the moment. It's always evolving and it's always changing. And so instead we sort of, well, we look at what materials we can use for a project and then take that next step of 
how do we work with them in the best way possible? So if we're working with concrete, let's look at how we can use the thermal mass of the material and to get the most out of that. Or looking at, you know, an example like Nightingale One is concrete blade walls for its construction method. And now like it's it's great that building stays incredibly stable in its internal temperature. But now we're looking at doing a grid column construction. So we're significantly reducing the amount of concrete going into a building. Okay. So just for the people at home who might not have heard of a grid concrete construction, <laughs> do you want to explain that a little bit further? So just using instead of big, long blade walls of concrete, so an entire wall out of concrete, using that as, you know, the entire apartment partition walls, instead using a, a concrete column to so much less co- concrete something it's only a meter by 200 in its size and then we have lightweight infill walls instead so yeah the volume is significantly less but then it's different with different typologies right so with multi-residential buildings we got to look at their buildings that really should be in place for a minimum 100 years, ideally more. And so materials that we want to put into that project, we want them to be durable and robust and timeless and also allow some ability for occupants to make that space their own as well. Whereas if you then on the opposite side of that is looking at commercial fit-outs. So a commercial fit-out can have... I think, you know, you really can't expect for it to have longevity. Mm-hmm. Businesses change quick, they expand, they contract, they move. And so you really need to think of commercial fit-outs as having, you know, a maximum potential five-year life cycle. Mm-hmm. And so the material specification and the way you install the materials has to be it's a different thought process. So something like a material that may be really sustainable from, you know, a certification and point of view, but if you put it in the wrong environment, it kind of is irrelevant. Mm. So an example being we recently did a collaboration with ANZ. Mm. So they wanted us to look at a how we could do the fit out of their customer facing stores and they knew that they're they're constantly moving their branches. And so the design was then approach was to design a kit of parts. And so everything that goes into that store as much as possible is loose fit construction. And then you can basically take all those components and put them into a new tenancy. So all the wall partitions are components that click together, they don't glue together, they don't get fixed into the cold shell of the space so the existing you know the surrounding walls and floors and then the materials also are loose fit so looking at carpet tiles that don't need to be glued down and looking at joinery components that are all loose items and then how all those pieces can click together and be able to be laid out in multiple configurations mm. so you can you can use them in as many store types as possible. So yeah, very, very different thinking in comparison to a multi-residential project. Yeah. That's great by ANZ that they were 
you know, happy to go on that journey yeah. to then also let that be part of their, you know, I guess this is a commercial consideration is like their brand, you know, it's going to be what people see and interact with, as you say, like a client facing side of their business or customer facing for, for quite a while if they keep using these products again and again and uh, well, yeah, it's, repurposing It's also them. It, back to that like common sense. It's a no-brainer for them. They have a design strategy now in place that they can roll out without having to engage, you know, an architect on every single store and they save on their fit-out costs because they're reusing all their components. They're getting the absolute most out of out of the design and out of the investment that they've put into building that. So there's no reason why a client wouldn't want to do that. And that's where you can talk about sustainable design in a way that speaks to a client, you know. Mm. There's so many benefits in in this idea of build less give more there's always a benefit to that at the tail end of it and whether that's a great build outcome but also a you know a financial outcome absolutely (laughs) and so something like the four pillars gin distillery to me looking at that project looks very robust and durable and i guess looking at it from an outsider's perspective does that have is is that because of the foot traffic that comes through there, and they want to be able to sort of bump have people bump around in it, and you know, sort of <laughs> let it wear over time? Yeah. So hospitality, that's you know, that's a space that gets the hardest wear, right? Like there's furniture moving around, lots of people in the space. It's a food which causes stains and and mess, and so definitely looking at the the material selection in a hospitality environment, they've got to be so robust and just, yeah, wear well because, again, you know, if you put all this beautiful upholstery in all the wrong places, it's not going to look good and it's going to have to be replaced in a short amount of time. So we, Four Pillars, you know, it's there's a lot of raw materials. So polished concrete from the slab, just polishing the slab as it was, recycled brickwork, raw copper plate, raw steel framework, and down to the furniture selection as well. So working with local suppliers such as Dow Jones to do raw steel frames and solid timber seat pads, but making that timber shaped so it's as comfortable as as possible instead of opting for an upholstered seat cushion. And in that design, you know, we were able to do some, one of the great things we did actually, which tied in the interior design with then improving their production and reducing waste was they had this idea that the the gin is produced on the site. So it's got a huge production. Part of that job was in expanding the production areas. And so the gin is piped directly from the where the gin's made and then put into the kegs and the gin is piped from the kegs straight to the bar Mm. and so a significant amount of reduction in glass wastage so we're not bottling the gin and then moving the gin literally 50 meters to the bar and then pouring it into a glass Mm. and you know the the result of that is this beautiful copper the journey of the copper pipes throughout the interior and then arriving in the bar and then that became the design feature in mm. something that was inherently just a services and, and practical item so yeah that was, that was yeah. great 
No, that's fantastic. And I guess also coming back to Nightingale and a few other projects that Breeds works on, there's quite a lot of bricks in the project. And I guess coming back to the design, the material design guideline, where a lot of the really durable materials like your timbers and your bricks, it seems like the first choice is reuse a material first and then there's sort of the the next rung on the ladder there. Can you take us through some of those sort of like the first rungs on the ladder that aren't reuse? Because I guess on the durable side, that's really interesting, but I'd also love to know as well about how you manage that with soft furnishings that must be, you know, really hard. Like you almost probably can't find reused materials all the time for things like covers for, for cushions on seats or for, for your you know, walls in this beautiful studio at the moment where surrounded by Ortex Cube. So yeah. I'd love to know, you know, how, how you manage the dur- really durable ones when you don't reuse the product and then the soft furnishings in your projects. There was one case where we did use recycled fabrics. I think you might have been around on that project, oh, and we 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 gathered oh, all the le- recycled leather. leather? That we could. Right. <laughs> but I think we were colourblind when we were selecting the leather <laughs> because the result was wasn't great. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's a nice idea that didn't didn't go so well. Um, Wonder if that cushion is still in that house. (laughs) So, yeah, look, recycled brick, recycled timber, you know, and recycled steel also, the first choice of materials that we do love to work with. We're now looking at, you know, those materials become more expensive and more scarce, which is great. It's great that all the recycled bricks are getting used up in Melbourne, you know. There used to be an abundance of them and we got them all, but now <laughs> it's pretty popular to use them. So, but that's that's a good thing. So, now we're looking at, yeah, what's the next step? What's the next option? And so, looking for brickwork at carbon neutral bricks. So, Brickworks and Kraus offer carbon neutral ranges, Australian made bricks. And, you know, it's quite just on a side thing about carbon neutral materials. There's a lot of, you know, you always got to be mindful of greenwash and all the bullshit around that because everything's green at the moment and there's, you got to put your filters on, right? Mm-hmm. But in terms of carbon neutral certification, you know, you can argue that you're really just a lot of the companies are offsetting. Mm. their carbon and offsetting is quite a controversial topic as well in what are the offsets and you know it's been a lot of examples where a lot of them are bullshit but I guess importantly carbon neutral certification it requires a company to look at all its processes and really scrutinize the carbon at each stage so in its manufacturing, you know, down to how you're transporting these materials around. So in bricks, a really heavy material, they've got to look at how are they moving them around. And so they have to change their, you know, equipment to electric instead of, you know, what have been diesel or something. And so just having that certification required, you know, creating companies to sort of really interrogate what they're doing is the perfect first step. and. As carbon offsets become more expensive, which they no doubt will, they have to and they should, it then they just have to keep going on that pathway of reducing their carbon. So it's not a perfect science at the moment. And 
you know, some materials would be really easy to offset to claim that mm-hmm. that title of carbon neutral. But it's, I think it's a really, it's an important process of, of starting, you know, of what, what we need to be looking at. So for us, looking at materials that are carbon neutral and circular mm-hmm. is really our new focus. And, you know, it wasn't something that we were thinking about five years ago. We weren't really talking about materials in terms of carbon. And we weren't, we were thinking about circularity, but not quite as much. And, you know, we're in a climate crisis. Materials are, it's not rocket science to know that, you know, materials are not an infinite resource. Mm. And so those two things are really critical for us. And that's, we're learning heats in that space and trying, this is still trial and error and working that out as we go. But that's what we're thinking about. And so for other materials, thinking about, you know, timber flooring as an example before, two of our projects in construction at the moment have, we've looked at cork flooring. So solid cork tiles, their cork is great. It's not an Australian timber, which we would have initially looked at, but cork is stripped off a tree. You don't cut a tree down to get the product. So in that way, you know, there's circularity as long as it's managed sustainably. And then it performs really well. You can, it can go straight down onto a concrete slab. It provides that acoustic performance. You don't need an underlay. So there goes a material that you used to have. And then you can restore it and seal it in exactly the same way as you do with solid timber. So it has that longevity. So that's one of the examples of where we've had to pivot on what can we do in this climate that meets a brief and a budget. So fabrics are incredibly hard. I don't think we've really, we haven't got our head around that one yet. As recycled plastic fabrics came onto the market, there was, you know, sort of this big emergence of those those products. But then thinking about upholstery, and then what is the end life of that recycled plastic fabric? That plastic is likely just going to go back into landfill because upholstery is not something that is recycled in Australia at the moment. I haven't seen a job where they've ripped all the cushions apart and put that fabric on its you know, proper recycling process. It's similar to, I feel as though carpet tiles is another one where they're recyclable and they've got these wonderful certifications and, you know, they tick all the boxes and green star requirements. But there's no one, like I don't believe anyone in Australia is recycling those products. And in 10 years' time when that commercial fit-out gets pulled apart, do you think the builder is going to put <laughs> send them back to Europe and (laughs) to be recycled properly. And so I think there's some common sense thinking in that as well. Like what's the actual likelihood of these materials being recycled properly? And a big part of that is having a value and a demand for that material at the end of its life. And so, you know, steel and timber and concrete have processes for being recycled in Australia and that's the next thing that really needs to happen in Australia is that is the that end of life for materials, which I think we've got a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah, I think on the, the circular economy side of things where we're first trying to reuse 
products as much as possible. And then moving into recyclability and sort of breaking down the materials for a second life in a different way. Yeah, it seems like there's some really exciting things happening over in Europe and the equipment and the facilities that we need over here to do the same thing. Just We're just not there yet, but hopefully yeah, we can get, get some of those underway. Yeah, so with the sort of circular economy concept, I'm not sure how many adaptive reuse projects Briz involved with at the moment, but that concept of you know the reusable carpet tiles, when you go into a project that's an existing project that you might reuse again, does that mean that you would need to have an agreement with a builder to say, right, as we go through that demolition phase before we start adding stuff in again, we have to have this sort of chain of custody program where the builder is going to sort and organise these materials? Yeah. Look, there's... There's a few builders in Melbourne that are, are just as passionate about this and they're really pushing their industry. And so, look, we like to work with them because <laughs> it makes we're not sort of fighting against them. We're all working together with them. And also, importantly, to have the client on board and understand and value that as well. And, but just recently, so we just completed Adaptive Reese Project Park Street. So, we sort of restored 1960s apartment block, so 19 apartments, and like incredibly enjoyable project for us to work on because it was such a light touch approach. One driven by the the budget of the project, it required that, but also that's all it needed. The bones of the building were in excellent condition. And so, you know, it didn't need to have more invested into it. But in that project, we, because, you know, we, it's very clear what we were taking out of the project. And so we, we created our own demolition schedule and made it as easy as possible for all, all the waste to be recycled or reused. So, you know, we listed all the old ovens were coming out because we're replacing them with new induction electric cooktops. And so we found someone who takes those and put that in the schedule. So it's like, here's the answer for you on you. Please do that. Mm -hmm. And then found a local scrap metal supplier, found someone who we removed a lot of the concrete, so a lot of the driveway was basically a site of two buildings and a concrete slab throughout the rest of the site, you know what they're like. Mm -hmm. And so we ripped up a significant amount of that to reinstate planting and then so we found a supplier that would take that waste and looked at options that didn't cost money for the builder. Mm -hmm. and Or if it did, to know that that's part of your costing, like be aware of that and that's that's important on this project. Look, it didn't go perfectly, you know, we'd, I've, came to site and saw, you know, a couple of things in the wrong bins and, you know, it's frustrating. But I think we'll just keep on every project, keep sort of on on those types of projects, we'll keep preparing that schedule until that becomes, you know, sort of educated in that space until that becomes something more commonly practised. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I guess that's um, that also speaks to your comments about typology and how on particular types of projects, yeah, you might be working with a builder, say a commercial builder on a, a multi-res project who has the staff and the trades who can 
be dedicated in those areas. Have you navigated that in a slightly different way or is it more one-on-one on a small projects on houses? Is it still possible to have that kind of, uh, or is it as easy to have that conversation with the smaller builders who might not have dedicated people to look out for that? Well, I guess there's two ends of the scale, right? On the small projects, yeah, you can have more direct conversations and and oversight. And then, but on the larger scale projects where you've got those resources, or you, you know, it's it is more, it's built in the contract with more sort of as quite a rigid thing, like you you have to do it. And so in in that sense, they can be, it is measured and monitored to a greater extent. So it's project by project. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Edit that one. (laughs) That's all right. Yeah, so I think as the sort of director of interiors as well, how have you seen things change since you started at Breathe in that interior space because, I mean, you're trained as an architect and you're registered, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, so you're registered architect and, you know, the, the interiors director. How have you sort of, yeah, seen the role of interior architecture at Breathe change over time? Because I guess my experience has been that in smaller practices, people are almost expected to be able to do architecture as a whole and be interior slash exterior, like it's just all everything. And then in the bigger practices, you get you know more specialized. Yeah, are you still, yeah, how have you just sort of seen that evolve for yourself as an architect? So then now, I guess, having having a bit more of an interior focus, but uh, I think you're still involved in other areas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't think we operate, you know, the interiors team don't operate in a traditional sense of an interiors team. I would say, because we've we've come from this architectural background, and like I strongly believe that yeah, it is all integrated. They can't be two separate elements. When we're talking about reductionism in materials, as an example, you have to be working with the architecture to achieve that. And so, our role in our practice with the interiors team is. For example, we do the spatial planning of every project and I think the spatial planning comes first and facade comes second and they can't be the other way around because if you really want to optimise the efficiency of a space, make it a wonderful, you know, a space that is wonderful for people and for them to enjoy and but also maximising light and ventilation and outlook and material efficiency which then ties into also efficiency of services and structure and all of these things I think lie in the floor plan of a building as a starting point and so when you're as opposed to having the architecture and then coming in as the interiors after that you're always going to have these constraints that could have been designed out and work together collaboratively with architecture. So this, you know, there's this push and pull of the two elements working together. You know, equally the facade has to perform well in terms of addressing heat gain and heat loss and protection against elements or against noise and all these other aspects. But I think it it really is, you know, it's this circular process and when you're really kind of reducing what goes into a space, it's got to work really, really hard. And so 
I think how we're involved in our projects is various stages through the design journey. But, yeah, it's not picking the <laughs> the paint colours at the end or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it sounds like quite a holistic approach. And I guess when, we start, when we're studying architecture, there's definitely architects throughout history that sort of prioritise the form, you know, looking at the facade first and then, yeah, working down to the selection of materials and the planning inside working to whatever that beautiful form and sculptural form might have been. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I guess thinking about the environment and, you know, what, what materials will be hit with the western sun or, you know, yeah, all of those things are really important to think about from the get-go. Yeah. And so now I guess with, with all of the processes that, that you've brought into to breathe and you've, you know, I guess developed this really great material knowledge, you produced the specification guidelines as well online for people to use. Was there a reason behind sort of sharing that, which some firms might see as part of Bree's very valuable IP, <laughs> but you decided <laughs> well, to put it yeah. out there? We really did did question, you know, we thought about if that's the right thing to do. How, how it came up is we, after completing Nightingale 1, and Nightingale then that was the launching point of other architects taking on that, the Nightingale model and doing it in their way. They weren't all, you know, the, the idea of Nightingale isn't that all the buildings look the same and they're not made of all the same materials. It's creative license on on an important approach to a building type. And so, but what we sort of found on early engagement with our, or just early consultation with other architects was we realised we kind of, we've done a lot of work and thought, put a lot of work and thought into material specification that that wasn't something that other practices were, had really gone into. And so we we created the guide for other Nightingale architects just based on our experience. And it's not, our guide is, we're not the experts. Like by no way are we the experts. But I think the approach we take gets us into the, we're asking the right questions, right? Like that's the important thing. You just got to have a curiosity and be trying to do the best you can in each situation, in each building with your knowledge at the time and what's available to you. And so it's really evolving, you know, where we're in the process of updating that guide because there's new materials, there's new technology, there's new ways that we're thinking, like I mentioned, sort of more around circularity, which is something not as heavily focused on in that previous revision. Yeah, so we, we developed the guide for those for the Nightingale architects. So we shared that IP with them and then we realised, what, what do we need to be holding on to this for? You know, this is, we need to be pushing the industry further with this we need to share what we've learned and we in return you know we hope that our peers share information with us and as an industry together we need to grow because unfortunately we can't <laughs> we can't build every building in melbourne the way that we want it to the way we want to so if we really care about the planet and we want to be making an impact we've, we've got to be working together and yeah, so and it's been great. There are the feedback and that we've had from sharing those guides has been really good. And yeah, that's that's why we do what we do, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think what's also great about that guide is that as Breathe continues to grow and continues to make 
huge, like bigger buildings that are getting quite large. I mean, even the work that you're doing collaboratively with other practices as well, like Arcadia over in Sydney, that the industry, like the actual material industry is looking at those guides and saying, well, you know, this this one practice is is actually influencing quite a lot of other big practices working on big projects. So they're going to look at that guide and say, oh, you know, yeah, carbon neutral and carbon neutral certified materials are going to be requested more. So yeah. we need to make sure that's in our catalogue. Has that been good to be able to talk now maybe a little bit more directly with with some people out there in the industry about changing their material catalogue? Yeah, just this week I had one of the leading glass suppliers reach out and say, could we be involved in your next revision of the guides? So either strengthening what we're asking for is the gui- you know, in that guideline and, yeah, it's nice to get their attention, yeah, coming back towards us because they must see it as, as it's sort of set an example to other architects. All right. Thank you so much for coming on board. It's great to talk about all of the projects. I mean, there's obviously so many other projects that Breath has worked on uh, that people can check out on their website. But it was great to hear about, you know, the common sense in material selection, where they come from, how they made, what sort of certification do they have behind them. Yeah, thinking about the typology and the use of material and where they're going to be used and what they're going to come up against in in their placement around the building. So, yeah, and thank you so much for also talking about the guide that Breath has produced and, and trying to share that information with our other, other architects out there. So, thank you so much, Bettina, for being on the podcast. Did you want to share anything else before we finish up? Yeah, please go onto our website, The Materials Guide. It's free download. Feedback is welcome. It's a constantly evolving thing. And yeah, great to chat with you, Dan. It's always a pleasure. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. Great to see you again. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, registered architect Bettina Robinson. Thank you so much for sharing all of your stories about material selection at Breathe and how much of an impact it can have on sustainable projects. We look forward to speaking with you again in the future to see what Breathe is up to. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architecture Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.